Hello, and welcome to Fast Talk episode 112, a question and answer session with Coach Connor and I. And yes, we're sitting in the same room again. We're on a streak, Mr. Connor. We are, two days. Two days in a row, recording in a building with equipment. So today we want to cover some of your question and answers. I want to give an update as well. First, cycling in alignment, the much anticipated podcast brought to us by our friend, fellow coach, fellow cycling lover, and thinker and tinkerer, Colby Pierce. It's going to be awesome. He's got a great mind. He's recorded a lot of good stuff already. I've heard it. You're going to love it. We're really excited about the show. As you know, we've had Colby on Fast Talk a ton of times. He always has great insights. He has perspectives that we don't have. I tend to be kind of science heavy. He knows the science, but he has the holistic view on this. And I think it's going to really add to to what we're offering with his show. Yeah. Uh, you, you'll see the, the show art reflects a very tranquil, philosophical perspective if and when you listen to the first episode, get into your your Zen place. This is, I'm trying to channel my inner Colby here. Get into your Zen place, put your head down, relax, maybe even light just a single candle and listen to that episode. That's the type, it's awesome. It'll get you into a great place. That's, that's, I'm hope, hopefully that appeals to people. It, It appealed to me. Well, we're excited. Check out his podcast channel now. It's got a couple episodes already there. One, his introductory episode, he really talks about who he is as an athlete, as a coach, why he's doing a podcast, why he wants to give all of this insight and discuss all of these topics around cycling and holistic health. He also has a gripping conversation with Nathan Haas, one of his friends, somebody he's known for a very long time, and who was stuck in Girona during lockdown in Spain. So that is another episode to check out right now. The other thing that we should mention about the show is that not only is he quite philosophical at times, he's very knowledgeable about the science. And so you'll hear him talk at length and in great depth about everything from pedaling dynamics to nutrition topics and so forth. So he's a great combination, a singular figure in the cycling world. One last thing, we'd love for you to check out a survey we've got running right now. Go to fastlabs.com slash subscription survey. We are considering a subscription model here at Fast Labs for some of the different offerings and some other things that we have in the works. So we just want to get your feedback on what you'd like to see, what you'd be uh, interested in subscribing to, other hosts for podcasts, other topics you'd like us to cover, and so forth. So please check it out. The address again, fastlabs.com slash subscription survey. Thanks. So today's episode, we've got a variety of questions from a variety of avenues. We've got email questions, we've got voicemail questions, we've got Twitter questions, we've got homing pigeon questions. No, we don't have any homing pigeon questions, do we? I hope not. I didn't prepare for that. (laughs) I haven't read my homing pigeon research in a while. Okay. Let's, Let's get into it. Let's get the first question. It comes from... Ryan Bates in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He writes, I am reintegrating some interval work back into my training plan following the polarized model you recommend. My typical HIIT workout is a so-called Russian pyramid, which I like because it keeps things interesting. The pyramid starts at 5 seconds all out, 55 seconds slow spin. Then 10 seconds all out, 50 seconds, slow spin, etc., all the way up to a pyramid with 55 seconds all out and a five-second slow spin, and you end up with a full-minute sprint. That takes about 12 minutes. If I'm feeling extra frisky, I'll do two or three sets with three to five minutes rest between them. So he has two questions. A, is there any reason why a Tabata-style interval workout, 30-30s, 40-20s, would be any better or worse... And second question, 
is it wise to be doing multiple sets of these or should you be doing these intervals so hard that you can only do a single 10 to 12 minute set? Trevor, what do you think? First thought that came to my head reading this and when I replied to him is an expression which I've used a few times in this show, which I love to use with my athletes, which is don't let the perfect get in the way of the good enough. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you my, my full answer on this, but there is a difference between what is potentially optimal purely from a physiological standpoint and then what's optimal from the, the bigger picture when you're looking at motivation, execution, enjoyment, getting gains out of it. But let's start with, he asked, if first question was, is there any benefit to the Tabatas? So I think to answer our full all these questions, I need to take a step back, give a quick Tabata history, which I think we've done on this show before. Yeah, it's worth reminding people, though. It's a good story. Basically, Dr. Tabata was a researcher. He was looking into this whole concept of Watt Prime, mm -hmm. this how much, what's, what's your energy capacity above threshold. And they were trying to figure out how to deplete it and found that if you had, if you just told athletes, go do a five, six minute all out effort and destroy yourself, it was actually really hard to do because that is, is very, very demanding outside of a, a race situation. Mm -hmm. So they tried something different where they gave short, hard efforts. So the original Tabatas were 2010s, mm -hmm. but a really short recovery. So you didn't have a lot of time to recharge that energy. Yeah, 20 seconds hard, all out, oh, right. full gas, as they say, 10 seconds recovery. Right, and then 20 seconds which all out, then 10 seconds really recovery. Which really isn't enough for recovery, which is the point. Would you do these intervals by the time you get to the seventh, eighth repetition? <laughs> that 20 seconds feels like about a minute. Yep. And that 10 seconds feels like barely a breath. Exactly. Yes. So they found it was very effective for what they were trying to research. They weren't actually initially, my understanding, uh, trying to design a workout routine. Sure. This was for research purposes this only. This was for research purposes. But then it turned into a workout. This was kind of a side benefit. People said, hey, look, actually, we there, there's training gains to depleting this. Con uh, so Watt Prime, we, we've covered this before as well. It's a lot of people say, well, this is your anaerobic capacity. That's not quite true because it's actually a measure of your capacity above threshold and you still have a lot of aerobic energy above mm. threshold. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of all your anaerobic energy capacity plus some aerobic energy capacity. Uh, but basically it's what do you have when you're going really hard. Right. That's and when you, if you want to train it, you got to go really hard. And lo and behold, what they discovered for their study holds for training as well. Going and doing five, six minute really hard efforts to destroy yourself ain't a lot of fun and mm -hmm. it's hard to do training uh going and doing the 2010s for some reason we can just beat ourselves up better so it made for a good workout so is it better than what he is doing is it better than a pyramid or are his pyramids better i'm first going to give you my bias which is i like to design workouts that target energy systems mm -hmm. I don't like high-intensity workouts where you hit every energy system under the sun mm -hmm. because I feel that there's, that can only go one of two ways. One is you only sort of hit every energy system, and no energy system gets enough of a stressor to really get a gain out of it's it. It's a bit of a compromise on all of them. Right. Or alternatively, you do such an incredibly hard workout that you actually stress every energy system and then you can't get out of bed for five days. Mm -hmm. Right. Neither one's a great option. So I'm generally big on have a workout that targets uh, one, maybe two energy systems and really hone in. Uh, so pyramids, especially those pyramids that start with like a five-minute effort, then a two-minute or four-minute effort, and go all the way down to a 15-second effort just run too much of the gamut for me. Mm -hmm. Now, the one exception I'll give is as you're getting into the season, 
Well, that's what races are. Races, you're doing a bunch of efforts in a bunch of different energy systems. So it's a great way to get some race specificity before you race. So that is the one place I would use that sort of pyramid. Mm -hmm. But as a regular training routine to use for a long period of time to build specific uh, assets, I don't love them personally. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do like the Tabatas because they really do target that very specific energy system. Right. That's that's what they were designed for. But you would also use them pretty sparingly. Yeah, I don't have to athletes doing Tabatas in December. Right. I look back, like I use them myself. I've been using them for years. And at one point I was going, well, am I breaking my own rules here? Am I doing them for too much for too long? And look back at even my best seasons, because they are so hard, because they're so damaging, I was finding that I would start them before the race season, just before the race season, and do them through the first part of the race season. And I would do a count, and I might do six to nine total Tabata workouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So not a lot. Yep. Well, you don't, once you do one of them, you'll realize that you don't want to do that many of them. That's the other <laughs> part of it. They're tough. They're, they're tough. They're not, not all that fun. So that said, looking at Ryan's pyramid workout, it's all under a minute efforts. So it's all getting into that above threshold, really beating yourself up type work. So it still is more one or two energy systems than mm-hmm. a lot of the classic pyramids. So I don't mind it. So it, like Tabata's, is honing in on that, trying to hit that watt prime, trying to deplete that anaerobic capacity. Is it better than Tabata's? Is it worse than Tabata's? Well, this gets back to my original point. We could probably split hairs and say, well, Tabata's are more specific. Uh, We could say, talk about specifics of the execution of the pyramids. But ultimately, my answer, and this is the answer I emailed back to him, is Tabatas really suck. They hurt. These pyramids probably really hurt if you're doing them right. Mm -hmm. But? But, exactly. If you are getting on your bike and going out and going, I am going to find any way possible not to do these 2010s, but I enjoy these pyramids, the even pyramids. if they're not yeah. quite as good, if you are motivated, if you enjoy them, this stuff hurts. Yeah. Go do what's fun. Yeah, right. You know, what a, you know, my original mentor, I've brought him up a bunch of times on the show, Glenn Swan, he, he was a fantastic cyclist. He tried intervals one, went once and went, well, those suck. I never want to do those. <laughs> So he set up a Tuesday night training race and he would go to the training race and just sit there and attack the field and get caught and attack the field. And if he was, you know, he was low tech, he didn't record any of his workouts, but had he had a power meter and recorded it, I imagine the profile of those Tuesday night races probably looked a lot like Tabata's, Mm -hmm. but it was just his way of getting that super high intensity in a way that he was motivated and and enjoyed. And he... Always oh, said that to me. He's like, I set up those Tuesday night races because I can't go that hard by myself. Right. He needed that context, and 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 some people could do probably use Zwift in that same way. Right. Exactly. So my answer to this is, if you, the question in terms of physiology, which is better, we could probably make an argument that the Tabatas are a little better, but. If you enjoy those pyramids, if you can go out and rip yourself apart and you're motivated to do that, I, as a coach, I would be telling you, yeah, go do that. In terms of how many sets should he be doing, that's very individual. It also depends on the level of the athlete. For a lot of athletes, one set is quite fine. When you start getting up to pro level, no, they're probably going to need a few sets. I will say if you are doing four sets of those pyramids, you're probably not going hard enough. Yeah, right. That That's pretty clear. If you're able to get through four of these sets, which we've already described as pretty awful, then you're not doing any of the four hard enough. Right. Right. So two on a really good day, get through three or half of a third. Mm-hmm. Probably a good. It was probably a good day on the bike. Yeah. 
Yeah. They've done research on benefits of additional sets. It's been more in the weight room, but a lot of the same principles apply to high-intensity work on the bike. And believe it or not, you get about 80% of your gains from the first set. Mm -hmm. So it is a law of depreciating returns, and it's a very steep curve. Yeah. Yep. So you, if you go out and just do one set, but do it really well of a hard workout, you're getting most of your gains. Mm -hmm. All right, let's take our next question. And this one comes from Google Voice. And I want to point out to our listeners out there, while we've enjoyed using Google Voice, we're actually going to stop using Google Voice. But we still want to hear your voice recorded and put that into our Q&A episodes. So what we want you to do record yourself on your voice memo app on your own phone. Do it as many times as you need to to get it right and then send it to us. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com. Should be pretty straightforward. All right, let's get to the question from Doug in Rochester, New York. Here it is. Hi, this is Doug Rusho from Rochester, New York. And my question is, in your opinion, what is uh, high intensity in terms of where does it start? Is it threshold? Is it VO2 max, anaerobic capacity, neuromuscular power? And based on that answer, when you're referring to uh, springtime heroes who then turn into July zeros and saying that they do too much intensity, exactly how much is that on a weekly basis, specifically during a base period in, say, January or February? Thanks. Trevor, what do you think? I had fun with this one last night. And I am just noticing that in his question, he never actually specifically used the terms HIT and HIIT. Uh, Chris and I discussed this question and brought those up. Uh, he did ask about high-intensity training. And so I had so much fun researching HIT and HIIT, we're going to answer those anyway. Yeah, absolutely. It's good context for the, for the question. And have a little fun with it. So... You will hear these two terms a lot, so, or you'll hear people talk about HIT training. Mm -hmm. So let's quickly give the definitions. This will be the clearest thing that I will say for a while now. <laughs> HIT stands for high-intensity training. HIIT stands for high-intensity interval training. And let me guess, they're not the same thing. Well... <laughs> You, you think it's going to be that clear and simple. Well, all right. Let's get so into let's, the, to the muddy part. You asked me about them yesterday. They are used a lot in the research. So I went, well, that's obvious. And then started to give you a muddled answer and went, maybe that's not quite as obvious as I thought. So I had some fun last night and I did a Google search on it. And by the end of the Google search, I was completely confused. Hmm. That was poor choice on my part. Did you, uh, did you reference any of your textbooks? that you go to? I did go to PubMed and look at research, and we'll, we'll finish with that. Okay, good. Because that's kind of where I stand. But for, let's start first with what you see if you're just going to websites talking about training, you know, basically the, the standard Google search, which is it is all over the bloody map. Mm, bloody so map. I found, sorry, it's all <laughs> over... <laughs> The nice, clean, clear map. Ah, no, I just I I like the term bloody. It's not used nearly enough in in the in North America. The Brits use it a lot. There's a British influence in Canada. You use it some. I used to use it a lot. That's a good point. Yeah, I never thought about that. We don't use it down here very much at all. Okay. Yeah, I use it a fair amount in Canada. All right. Let's bring it back. Let's popularize it in Boulder. It is our thing now. Bloody Boulder. Bloody fast talk. Bloody fast. Bloody fast talk. <laughs> wanker. Can I say that on the air, wanker? Never I mind. don't know. <laughs> I thought that was like a sausage or something over in, in the UK, right? Now that we've confused people with the term bloody, let's get into the confusing terms of HIT and HIIT. Very good. Let's do it. So one website, and I'm not going to give these huge URLs, differentiated them by saying one is endurance related and said that HIIT involves resistance. No, actually, the first one said that HIT involves resistance training and HIIT is endurance work or cardio work. Second one said HIT resistance training gives gains of cardiovascular work in seconds. Hmm. 
So it's basically their argument is that uh, you go do some high intensity. This is a good old, you can get all the cardio gains in seven minutes. And that's using the hit work. Yeah. My, my favorite, which I'm going to read their description because I don't know how to explain this. Says, is there actually a difference between H-I-I-T and H-I-T, or are it just different spellings of the fitness trend that has become so popular in recent years? Clearly, this is actually two different training forms. Both have one thing in common, namely the extremely high intensity, but the one, H-I-T, is used in the sport, and the other, H-I-I-T, rather in the area of endurance sport. <laughs> that uh well, that doesn't sound like somebody f- with english as their first language wrote that i don't know but that was one of the first things to come up in a google search okay. asking the difference between h-i-t and yeah. h-i-i-t point being there's there's some confusion, confusion out there yes so what i got from when you are looking at it in kind of the common what people think of not just in the cycling world, but in the sports world in general. I actually found an article on Penn Medicine News. It says, the workout debate, experts weigh in on cardio versus HIIT. And they, they ask a whole bunch of trainers, physiologists, the differences. And they all said similar things, and I'm just going to read one which is celebrity fitness trainer Jillian Michaels explained to the insider why cardio, in this case running, is the least efficient form of exercise, saying in the piece, this is because cardio is not metabolic, meaning it doesn't cause the body to continue to burn calories post-workout. Strength training, on the other hand, causes the body to burn calories both during and after workout. So in clinical terms, HI... HIIT is really better than traditional cardio exercise and basic. So I'm not going to keep reading, but goes on to several of the experts say basically HIIT training is, is more efficient. Hmm. You're going to burn more. You're going to get more gains in less time than what they're calling traditional cardio. So that's kind of the, what you're going to see a lot out on the web. If you go to PubMed and look at the research, what I am finding is there were a few studies that differentiated HIT from HIIT, mm-hmm. but for the most part, they're used interchangeably mm. uh, from basically very high-intensity work that involves some sort of interval structure. And what they differentiate is HIT work from LIT work from MCT. So LIT work is low-intensity training. That's your long, slow, zone one, zone two rides. An MCT, well, if you look it up on the web, I just discovered it stands for Marine Combat Training, but I don't think that's what <laughs> that, they're referring to in the research. Right. This is moderate, consistent training. Mm-hmm. So it's that sweet spot or long thresholdy type work, but yeah. kind of that in-between. The few studies that I did find that differentiated them, HIIT involves some sort of interval structure where they were talking about HIT being still high-intensity, threshold or above, uh, but being constant. Mm-hmm. So if you're going out and doing Tabatas, that's HIIT. If you're doing sprints, Two-wise. right, HIIT. If you go and do a threshold climb up a 40-minute climb, they might call it HIT. But for the most part, the research seems to use those two pretty interchangeably. Mm-hmm. So what is high intensity? Yeah, back to back to Doug's question about where what is high intensity, where does it start, so right. forth. So remember we did do an episode where we said, look, there is not this black and white, you're one beat per minute above threshold, so now you are doing this type of training, you're one beat per minute below threshold, now you're doing that type or five watts below, five watts above. It is a continuum. So high-intensity training, think of it as threshold and above. But I'm still going to say if you're a little bit below threshold. So we talked about those time trialers going and doing 95% threshold, big gear type work. I would still call that high-intensity work. But it's when you are doing 
threshold or above interval type work, you're doing high intensity training. And obviously we're talking about above anaerobic threshold here. Yes. Yes. Not above the aerobic threshold. LIT would be aerobic threshold or below, and that MCT would be that in-between range or what will be more commonly termed sweet spot. Right. Going back to his question, I I loved, I I actually haven't heard it turned this way, but referring to springtime heroes who then turn into July zeros. Thank you for sharing that. I haven't heard that one. That's a good one. So he said, exactly how much is that on a weekly basis, specifically during base period in, say, January or February? So this, again, depends on who, you're gonna, who you talk to. We've brought this up many times that we have a polarized bias. There are lots of people out there that have a high-intensity bias. There are lots of people out there that have a sweet spot bias. So if you are talking to people who have that more sweet spot bias, they're going to tell you not a ton of HIT, not a ton of LIT. Biggest bang for the buck is that MCT, sitting that in-between range, and they're going to tell you because it isn't as damaging, so you can keep doing it day after day, but you're going to get a lot more gains in the long and slow. So you should do a lot of that. Polarized model is basically saying, all your time is either above anaerobic threshold or below aerobic threshold. Avoid that in between. That HIT work is very damaging. So generally, if you're talking on a, a weekly basis, it's two sessions per week. Mm-hmm. And we've already had that talk about maybe a week is not the best way to map things out. Ten, 10 days, days. Yeah. Is, is better. And you're looking at two sessions per 10 days something like that. But it's infrequent high-intensity work, but make it hard, and the rest of your time is in that LIT range. There is the time crunch approach, which is you spend very little time on the bike. And and this is, I was quoting all those websites, that's basically what they're saying. They're saying, why would you waste all this time going out and doing long and slow, train four or five hours a week, and do nothing but high-intensity, and you'll be a superstar? (laughs) I would say if you are somebody who's just looking to be sort of fit and lose some weight Mm -hmm. there's probably some validity to that if you are actually an athlete trying to train for performance i don't think that's going to get you very far yep our next question comes from ariana in sereno italy and she asks how can i effectively use this time during stay-at-home orders as an opportunity to give my body a break from constantly high carb intake and improve the state of my gut. Well, we actually had Petr Vakoc, a pro rider on the phone recently. He's with the Alpeson Phoenix team. Petr, also stuck inside right now at his training base and in Andorra dealing with this very issue. So we asked him this question and here it is. Here's his answer. Yeah, that's uh, exactly what I'm trying to do because like based on my experience, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe it's mainly the high amount of fructose that uh, I consume during uh, the races or even during uh, the hard trainings, That's uh, which is the main cause of my digestive issues. But I think in general, like eating so many carbs and, and especially so much uh, of uh, simple sugars. So this is a perfect uh, time to cut most of it and uh, focus on eating uh, real food, which also has the benefit of uh, filling you more, I would say, because now probably for most of the people, the training volume is uh, quite limited and uh, the intensity as well as uh, there are no no real goals on the horizon uh, so it's uh, an opportunity to give the body a little bit of a break and uh, opportunity to heal up uh, i would say some of the damage that uh, that's caused by the nutrition that's necessary for the for the highest performance so for me it is uh, just to eat uh, as much food in the natural forms and uh, limit uh, 
the sugars as much as possible. I still uh, consume some around some of the more intensive trainings, but also what I try to do now, uh, just use uh, maltodextrin instead of uh, the glucose fructose combination to really cut the fructose and, and see if, if that's the case and if it helps. And yeah, at the moment with uh, like the generally very healthy nutrition that uh, I'm trying to follow now, uh, I hope the, the benefit will be also uh, with, uh, I would say, some, yeah, longer term healing effect on, on the gut uh, and uh, hopefully less uh, digestive issues uh, when uh, we are back in uh, the racing times. Anything to add to this answer, Trevor? I'm just going to add giving a little bit of my bias, which as you know, I don't think the super high carbohydrate diet is that performance enhancing. Mm-hmm. And I used to be a huge proponent of the high carbohydrate. Uh, I'm not going to get on the ketogenic avoid carbohydrate camp either. But I think there is a, a balance. The main thing I am going to add is, and again, you are getting my bias. I don't like the constant trend of high carb, low carb, high fat, low fat. That's not how our bodies function. Mm-hmm. The question is, what are you eating? What are the sources of those carbohydrates? It's not important whether it's high or low, but what are you eating? So people tend to, when you hear carbohydrates, you tend to think, well, breads and pasta. Right. Fruits and vegetables are carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Candy's carbohydrates. Yep. So you can eat a high carbohydrate diet that's all candy and (laughs) crappy pasta. Yeah. Or you can eat a high-carbohydrate diet that's based more on a lot of fruit and vegetables. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have very different impacts on your health. Yeah, I mean, the 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 two have the carbohydrates, but one lacks pretty much anything else, and the other has a lot of these other key right. nutrients that you need to, to thrive. So my answer to this question is, I don't think now you need to go low-carb or... I would just get away from that mindset of high carb, low carb, more think about let's get some quality, high nutrient density foods Mm -hmm. in our bias. And and I think once you get back to full training and racing, that should still be your bias. Right. You could use this opportunity as a bit of a reset if you've previously been um, with that mindset of I must have high carbohydrate diet and we're talking the sort of the stereotypical high carbohydrate diet with with breads and pastas to perform on the bike but use this time right now maybe you're not riding as much or maybe you can't ride outside as much reset your body eat more of a healthier diet with more fruits and vegetables etc cut down on the carbohydrate level to some degree and then continue that into racing and training and and see that you can actually perform just as well if not better with that diet. I remember a couple of years ago, I listened to a podcast interviewing a well-known ex-pro who has been on the podium at a grand tour, and they were talking about diet and doping. And he had a very cynical view saying, to perform at this level, you have to eat a horrible diet. We mm-hmm. all ate crappy. And that was part of his justification for why they needed to dope. <laughs> And I am going to, again, give my bias, which I think that is pure BS. Yeah. Uh, I think it is possible to eat a healthy diet and perform at that level. They just didn't do that. And probably had they been eating healthier, they would have recovered better and possibly could have performed. And certainly not the level they were performing at then. That was just not physiological. Mm -hmm. Uh, But could have performed at a, a high level with a healthier diet. Yeah. Well, let's uh, close out the episode with a couple questions that reference back to our last Q&A episode where we dove deep into TSS, CTL as well. Let's first hear from Ben Guernsey who asked us about TSS and recovery. What tools can he use to help with that? 
Recovery is super important, as we all know by now. I recall Trevor talking about a study in an early episode about how athletes of a national federation would take their resting heart rate in the morning to know how to train that day. So when it comes to larger rest blocks, do I need to schedule in a full week? Or with new HRV technology like WHOOP, is it a better use of time to recover until my HRV is back up well into the green? Is there any evidence extra days of being well recovered have some benefit of additional repair, rebuilding, or is this just wasting days that one could get back to training? I tend to have my TSS on a rest week, trying to, quote, stir the pot with activities, no weights or intensity. Besides serious injury or illness, is there ever a time to go, quote, full couch potato? Trevor, what do you think? I love recovery questions. That's the first thing I'm going to say. Love recovery questions. Recovery is so important and so overlooked. So, Ben, thank you. <laughs> love that you asked this. The very short answer to your question is that, yes, additional days there are no additional gains. There's a certain point where you flip over from recovering to simply detraining. But that comes with the giant qualifier of it's very hard to know when that point is. And my experience with most athletes is they don't get to that point. They tend to stop the recovery phase too early. And I particularly when I've had an athlete really fatigue and I want them to do a proper recovery, I would rather have them err on the side of recovering too much than too little. So let's dive into this ways of knowing, and he brought up whoop. So let's talk a little bit about heart rate variability and, and how to use that. And one other thing I'm going to point out here is I'm talking about true recovery weeks. I'm not talking about you did an interval session yesterday, so now you're doing a recovery day today. I'm talking about you just finished a giant stage race or you just finished uh, a big training camp and now you want to do a true recovery week to let your body come back up. When I give my athletes that week, the way I describe it to them is you're after a couple days, you're going to feel pretty good. You're going to feel like you're ready to start training. You're going to contact me and say, Trevor, I know that you told me to recover for a week, but I'm feeling ready to train. And when you are thinking about emailing me or calling me to tell me that, what I can tell you is you are not recovered. As a matter of fact, your body hasn't even started the true recovery mode. We've talked about this before. Your body has natural painkillers, and when you're really beating your body up, it's going to get those painkillers flowing. So and when you are really fatigued, and you, you just did a hard block or a race, yeah, you're aware that you're tired, but at the same time, you kind of feel good. And it's hard for your body to recover when those painkillers are flowing. So there's always a point on that recovery week where my, I, I will get the email I want for my athlete, which is, I woke up this morning and I feel like I got hit by a bus. I could barely get out of bed. That's to me is when the proper recovery has started. And a true recovery week, I don't want my athlete coming out of it feeling great. I actually want them coming out of it feeling really flat. Uh, recovery weeks actually aren't a lot of fun. And then we start back up with the training, and after a certain length of time of training, that's when they start feeling good again. How long that takes, again, is incredibly variable. And it can vary from person to person, but even for an individual, uh, it can that length, what your body needs, can vary quite dramatically. I have had times where I've been beat up and I go through that whole cycle and I'm ready to train within four or five days. I have had times where it's taken me two weeks before I feel like I'm really ready to train again. So my first suggestion is if you are going to do this, if you are going to take a true recovery week, don't do this right before a big event because it could be a long time before you're really ready to fly again. 
you know, you, it might be, yeah, you, you, you go through that whole cycle like I do sometimes in four days and you feel great and you're ready to go. Your power numbers are up and fantastic. But for example, an athlete I was coaching last year, he was having a really good spring. Form was great. He had to take a trip to England for a friend's wedding and took a week off the bike and came back, hopped into a, a race a few days later, got popped almost instantly felt lousy it was three four weeks before we had him back to racing form so you just don't know what are some tools that people can use or in this case ben is looking for a way to really understand and he's mentioned whoop and we we have experience with whoop what can you tell us about that product and and what is it trying to indicate to the user yeah, heart rate variability can be a really good guide and we have talked about this before and They've even done studies where they've used heart rate variability to direct people's training as opposed to a periodized training plan and showed that the, the people who are using heart rate variability to uh, define their, their training day to day and week to week actually saw greater gains. So that goes back to that whole back in the 80s and 90s, these teams like the German national team, I believe, where they had doctors that were checking them every morning and literally telling them day by day what they should be doing for their training. Heart rate variability uh, and the whoop strap, which uses heart rate variability with along with a couple other metrics, can be really effective at that. Important thing when you're looking at heart rate variability is not to get too caught up in an individual day. Heart rate variability is much more effective if it's averaged out over a week. Uh, and the whoop strap, again, uh, does that. So when it's giving you a, a recovery score for a day, it's doing a running average. So it's, it's not just your heart rate variability that, that morning. Uh, all this being said, I have several of my athletes using a whoop strap. I've used one myself. These true recovery weeks are where the whoop strap can actually fool you a little bit. And there's actually even a white paper on the, the WHOOPS website that addresses this, that uh, in higher level athletes, you can get what's called parasympathetic saturation. And the short version of this is while you're in, what I, what I see with my athletes when this happens is when they are doing a training camp that is fatiguing them, their their recovery score in the whoop is actually going up. And then on the recovery week, once they hit that point where they uh, they get hit by the bus and they're actually starting to recover, their whoop score tanks. So your whoop score is actually the exact opposite of what's going on. Now, bringing this back to the theme of this week, TSS, he he mentions having his TSS. That doesn't seem to be it obviously depends on what you're you're averaging overall or what your big weeks yeah. look like. But that doesn't seem to be nearly nearly low yeah, enough. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, I don't generally use TSS as a guide for recovery. I really go more with the sensations uh, of what I'm looking for in my athletes. And during a recovery week, I will tell my athletes, call me every single day. Let me know how you're feeling. We'll do test rides, and I want to know how they're feeling. And it's much more based on sensations. But in terms of if you are measuring the TSS, so you're right, Ben said he he cuts it down. He cuts his weekly TSS in half. To me, that's a sign that he is not doing a, a true recovery week. So to give you an example, my typical week, my TSS will be... 600 to 800. When I do a training camp week, my TSS will be closer to 1200. On a recovery week, I don't want to break 150. Right. So you really, really want to recover. And I see athletes really struggle with that. So I did a, a recovery week in February where I finished my, my camp on Sunday. I didn't touch my bike until Friday. Friday was an easy spin. Saturday was an easy spin. Then Sunday was just a three and a half hour long, really slow ride. And even that might have been a little too much. Uh, but when I tell athletes to do that, you just see the nervousness of, but I'm going to detrain. Oh, 
you know, I, I can't go that long without riding the bike. But if you're trying to do proper, true recovery, you got to do that sometimes. Yeah, it's really interesting to, to see that uh, so many athletes have a lot of determination when it comes to getting their numbers super high. If they could also take that same determination and, and strategically use it to make their numbers really low sometimes, they might actually benefit from that. When I was coaching the Morning Glory Cycling Club up in Toronto, I would see this every year, and I really tried to warn the athletes about this. They had a camp at the end of April, beginning of May, I can't remember the exact dates, down in Boone, North Carolina. That was four days. So it was Thursday through Sunday, and it was brutal. I mean, it was six hours plus every day where we were just going and throttling each other up every climb and in uh, North Carolina, and you were just smashed by the end of it. I came back from that, and I did my recovery week. I barely touched my bike the, the week after that. I saw several of the people who went to Boone, North Carolina. You know, we had the talk. Uh, the, the people running the camp said, you need to make sure next week is a recovery week. And they went, oh, yeah, we get it. Well, the club yeah. had a Tuesday morning training race and a Thursday morning training race. And half of these guys would be at both training races, racing them. Recipe for disaster, right? yeah. And I'd ask them, and they go, well, but I didn't ride on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Or I went for easy spins on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So that was a recovery week, right? And you just go, no. And I would see some of these guys who would do that the rest of the season. They would actually be racing worse after Boone than they were before Boone. Because I think that camp combined with not doing a proper recovery week after was what flipped them over into overtraining and they just never got out of it after that. Would you say that if your training camp weeks or these blocks that you do get bigger, that consequently the recovery weeks are that much more critical to get right? Yes. Uh, I would say the, the more a camp destroys you, the more you have to be really careful about doing the recovery right. But what is the right amount of recovery? That's where you really have to listen to your body and let it tell you. Uh, I get asked again and again and again by athletes, so what, I need six days for this one, seven days for this one? And my answer is always, your body will tell you. Yeah, it all depends. Yep. Last but not least, let's take a question from Twitter. This is from Alfredo. His handle is alperalta underscore C. If anyone out there wants to retweet him or tweet back at him or do some t tweeting of some other kind. I don't know. Twitter, Twitter's crazy, crazy world. All right. His question is, what would be a manageable weekly CTL ramp rate without generating too much fatigue? Trevor, I know you have some great thoughts on CTL, TSS in general. What do you think? Well, first of all, great question and really appreciate this because this is a question in response to our very recent episode where we address questions about CTL and TSS and all those metrics. Yeah. So I will start by just reminding what I said in those episodes, which is my bias. I think there's value to CTL, but I don't live or die by it mm -hmm. as a coach. Mm -hmm. There are coaches out there who do live and die by it. They, they live on these metrics. And quite frankly, they might be the better ones to answer these questions than me. Because I will go into this. Uh, there is a graph in WKO showing your ramp rate, uh, and it has its suggestions on what's appropriate ramp rates. That's not how I coach. Mm -hmm. So is, you say it's available in WKO. Is it also available in just the, the to, not to in the training peaks? No, it's not. Okay. Yeah. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit about that graph? Sure. Which. Do we want to post this? Post yeah, we, we can, yeah, we can post it. Yeah, so I'll show you mine just because you get a good laugh out of it. It has a suggested range for uh, a ramp rate, and 
the one thing that's fairly consistent about my training is I'm either above or below the suggested <laughs> range, but almost never in it. Well, that uh, you being a nonconformist, that fits with, with yes. everything that you do in life, basically. So, Pretty much. Yeah. So remember that CTL is a weighted average uh, of your daily TSS. So the, the simplified version, if you have a, if your CTL is at a hundred, that means over the, and let's say you've set your graph to a 42 day running weighted average. That means for the last 42 days, you've effectively been averaging a hundred C a hundred TSS per day. So the ramp rate is how much TSS you want that to increase by per day. And the graph in WKO suggests that the ideal range is one to four TSS per day. And then has a alert range that's zero to five. So if you're above five or below zero, you're not training effectively. And I'm just looking, I hit 10 a couple weeks ago. <laughs> and then I dropped down to negative five the following week. Mm -hmm. So I, apparently I'm not liking that range. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the idea behind it. They're basically saying this is the ideal range. I do have this graph. I do look at it. Uh, I have some athletes where, yes, they seem to, when they are, when they are within the, that range, they seem to be progressing very well. With other athletes, no, that doesn't seem to be right. I know what's right for me, and you'll see when we post mine, I am rarely within that range. I'm, I'm above or below because hmm. I'm that type of athlete. I like a training camp approach. I like to have a big fatigue week and then recover, then build up to another big fatigue week, then recover. That's the best training for me, and that puts you either above or below the, mm -hmm. the ideal range. So what is ideal? highly highly individual and i don't think it's as simple as saying here's a here's a metric this is what's right for everybody you have to find what's right for you you have to find how you respond and i think you need to move beyond the metrics and this is where you really need to know your own body and how you're feeling yeah so for example if you are looking at this graph and you're sitting between that one and four that they're recommending, but you're waking up every morning, dragging your feet, you're struggling to do your intervals. You can't look at the graph and go, but I'm in the ideal range. No, you're fatiguing. I think it's more valuable to look at your CTL. No, most athletes have a CTL where they tend to perform best. For some athletes, it's 80. For some athletes, so you get into pros, it's up around 140. You need to know about what's the right CTL for you, where you perform your best, and target being at that CTL when you want to be performing at your best. And then I would say it's, if your ideal is 100 and you're at 50 three weeks before that and you try to ramp yourself up, you're in trouble. That is a too steep of a ramp rate. Right. So you want to plan it out so that you're doing something reasonable to get there. What is reasonable? In term, the way I would look at it in terms of knowing your body, if every week you are fatigued and struggling, you are training too hard and you're going to get yourself in trouble. Conversely, if you never have weeks where you're fatigued, you're probably not training hard enough. Mm -hmm. You're probably not pushing yourself. So with my athletes, I look to have standard weeks where they go, yeah, that was hard, but it was very manageable. I could keep that up. But you want periodic weeks where you go, that was tough. I pushed myself. I am tired. I now need rest. That's more how I look at it, is that balance of weeks that are easier, weeks that are much harder, that are fatiguing, and some weeks that are fairly standard, manageable. And whatever that ramp rate is, is whatever that ramp rate is. Mm -hmm. I really can't see why you didn't answer this question on Twitter. I mean, that was like 140 characters right there. Good point. <laughs> what, would, what would be the short Twitter <laughs> yeah, version you, of that? You think about that <laughs> and post it. I don't, I don't think we have the, the uh, wherewithal to do that right now after all that was just said. Uh, maybe the really simple Twitter response is to put my graph up and just say, not this. Not this. There you go. That's even, <laughs> even shorter. 
don't do what Trevor does. Do what he says, not what he does. This is pretty much, we could summarize, if we wanted to summarize our entire podcast on Twitter, it'd be pretty much just post a link to my training and go, don't do this. <laughs> don't, just don't. don't tell people that. <laughs> but like I said, do what he says, not what he does. Because I have ridden and trained with Trevor and um, he breaks his own rules a lot of the time. Don't you? Admit well, the rule that I follow that is true for every athlete is every athlete is unique. Mm -hmm. Especially you, you. You have to find <laughs> what works for each yes. individual athlete. And I have found what works for me. And I will tell you right now, and I don't see this as a being hypocritical. No, not at all. I give very few of my athletes what I do. Yeah, that makes total sense. Right. And I actually made that mistake very early as a coach. I gave several athletes basically the my training template, and they all mm -hmm. suffered for mm -hmm. it and very quickly learned, don't give them what I do. Right. This is right for me. It's not right for them. And, and it's about finding what's right for each individual. And that's probably the full swing back to what's the right ramp rate. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the right ramp rate for me versus what's the right ramp rate for you versus Chris versus Jana. Yeah. Um, by the way, Jana climbed up into the mountains for the first time this weekend. We have to call her yeah. out for this. And, and she froze her butt off. She needs new clothes. Hey, clothing companies out there, send Jana some clothing. She'll test it out for you, give you great reviews. Because it'll be an improvement over whatever she's wearing now. Jana did what all athletes who are new to cycling in Colorado did and dressed for the weather in Boulder and then went up in the mountains and discovered it's much colder up there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the point being ramp rate should be individual. You it's, have to find what's right for you. Yeah, it's exactly why, you know, when we get uh, a pro on here or if we get somebody, any anybody really, and we ask them, oh, so how do you train or what's your workout like? It doesn't really, it doesn't really matter when you look at it from that point of view because you don't want to copy what a pro does. You're not the pro. Even if you're at that level, pros train differently. Pros train to their own physiology, to their own preferences to their own uh, situations and so forth. So just copying somebody's training plan, it's not, it can get you somewhere, but it doesn't get you to the best place. Right. What you have to do is listen to all these different ideas. And this is why we actually have so many side interviews mm -hmm. with pros, with a lot of different people that are going to give you different opinions. Because what you have to do is listen to all these different things, try the different things for you. Again, going with that ramp rate, and one of the reasons I don't give athletes what works for me, I'll give you two examples. I have one athlete who I train who in the winter I can hit him really hard and push him really hard. But when we get into the season, if I give him hard weeks, he very quickly goes over the edge and can't race well. Mm. So when we get to the race season, I really need to back down his training to where almost the only intensity he does is races. And then he performs at his best. We are joking about me. Part of the reason I don't give any of my athletes what I do is what is best for me is when I'm coming up on a target race, I do two, three weeks of tearing myself apart. Mm. And at some point in the middle of that two to three weeks, I hit a point where it feels like I am getting dangerously close to an overreach. Uh, that I would immediately pull one of my athletes back from. For some reason, I push through that, and then all of a sudden, I just come through the other side, hmm. and I'm performing at my best. And like I said, early in my coaching days, I went, oh, well, that's the way it works. Mm -hmm. So I did that yeah. with a bunch of athletes, and they never came through the other <laughs> side. <laughs> yeah, and you don't work with those athletes anymore. <laughs> one did fire me, <laughs> rightfully so. The rest I adjusted. Yeah, but so, it probably took you a long time, too, to realize what worked for you. It took some trial yes. and error, took some experimentation. That's sort of the, the point here, too, is that you can't just t take what we tell you to do right. and expect it to always work for you. You have to interpret that. You have to go out, try it. If it isn't right, well, we're not necessarily wrong. It's just that the advice we gave wasn't perfect for you, so you have to modify right. from there. 
There are certain principles that we believe in that apply to everybody. That's Mm -hmm. why I keep bringing up the fundamental principle. The one thing that's true of everybody, you need to stress your body at a level that it can't handle. Mm -hmm. To come back strong, to make it come back stronger. To to hypercompensate. And how you get there, there's a lot of different ways. But if you're never really stressing your body, you're never going to get stronger. Yeah, you're just going to stay at the same level. Right. And for some people... You know, I actually say this is unfortunate about me. It's a hell of a lot of stress mm-hmm. before my body mm. rebounds. For other people, it's not a lot of stress. Yeah, hit themselves hard for a couple of days, take some rest, and all of a sudden they're flying. So you need to find what's the right balance for you, and it is individual. The software helps, but get away from thinking everybody's graph needs to look the same. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to get your podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on our social media channels. Our handle is at RealFastLabs. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Coach Trevor Connor, I'm not Coach Chris Case. Thanks for listening.